This is not Bright Church. How we doing? All right. Hey, despite what you may have been led to believe, this is not brought to you by Charmin or Clorox or Johnson & Johnson. Uh, yeah, hey, happy Mother's Day. My name's Tom Nelson. Uh, I also have the privilege of serving here, of volunteering here as a member of the teaching team, and I have just been subtly cued by Jeremy to dismiss the youth. Youth, hey, have a great day. Have a great day. Uh, hey, let's give a hand to our youth, huh? I get to serve here on the teaching team. I also get to serve on the campus uh, full-time as uh, a campus minister with an organization called The Navigators. And so it's, it's a privilege to be here. Um, I love that we're in this series, Confident. Coming out of Ephesians, we're looking at this reality that Jesus himself through what he has done for us in his coming and his dying and his raising and his invitation for us to experience new life through faith in him has given us confident access to the Father. And because of that, we can live confidently in this world. Kevin started us off taking a closer look at what this confidence looks like, right? The week after, we, had, um, we talked about freedom. Last week, Jeremy led us in a conversation about joy, and today we're going to be talking about hope. Now, um, if, you're, if you're new here, if you're a guest here, first I want to say to you, I'm really glad you're here. It's so cool that you found yourself here, whether through the invitation of a friend or you just saw people coming into the building. I'm really glad you're here. For those of you who have been coming here for years, I'm really glad you're here. I hope there is something that happens in our midst today which radically alters the way we look about our lives the way we think about our faith, the way we interact with the world around us. And we're going to be looking in the scriptures. So if you do not have a Bible with you, we have Bibles available. Feel free to just put your hand in the air. Uh, Kevin, the guy who gave the announcements with the really well-groomed beard, which I'm jealous of, he will uh, make sure a Bible finds its way into your hands and keep the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, keep it as a gift. Open it often. Spend a lot of time with it. Not so that you can just uh, know the Bible, but so that you can know well the God who stands behind every word in the scriptures. We've been talking about confidence. Today we're talking about hope. I titled this sermon, Jesus, Our Only True Hope. I wanted it to be abundantly clear what we're talking about here. Okay? Jesus, our only true hope. I was talking to one of our Navigator students earlier, and they said, that kind of sounds Star Wars-y. And I thought, I know, I thought about making a Star Wars joke, but... I don't know Star Wars well enough, and I thought, I'm going to screw it up, and half the people here will be mad at me, and they'll, they'll just tune out. So, Jesus, our only true hope. That's where we're going. And so, later today, if someone asks you, hey, what was church about? What was the sermon about? This is what you're going to tell them. Jesus is our only true hope. If, if, you're, if you're sitting down uh, this afternoon, and you're thinking, what was church about? Remember this. Jesus is our only true hope. Okay? And if we are putting our hope in our financial plan or um, the affirmation of a significant other or maybe it's um, our education, our grades, UC Davis students, I'm looking at you. The weight of our expectations, the weight of ultimately looking those, to those things for our definition, for, for, um, for our sense of thriving, for our identity, you will ultimately, if you are putting your ultimate hope and identity in those things, they will fail you. They will utterly fail you. You will end up emotionally bankrupt and heartbroken 
because those things were never meant to bear the weight of our deepest desires. Those things were never meant to bear the weight of our cosmic expectations that can only be placed in Jesus. The reality is, our greatest problem is not that we don't have enough money or that our grades aren't good enough or that we don't feel necessarily connected today to a spouse or maybe to someone we want to be our spouse. Our greatest problem is that we're sinners and that God is holy and that it is only in Jesus that there is any hope of those two facts being reconciled. Remember, this is what you're going to walk away with. Jesus Christ is our only true hope. That's where we're going. I've tipped my hand early. Now we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, getting there. So we've lived, uh, my wife Nicole and I and our kids, we've lived in Davis now for about three years, coming up on three years. And before that, I actually directed the Navigators Campus Ministry at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo. Cal Poly. All right. In Davis, you don't get that response. Usually it's, Cal Poly. So one of the things I would often do with our students, we had, a, we had a mixed context. We had a lot of Christians who would hang out with us. We had a lot of non-Christians who would came, uh, hang out with us. And one of the things we did every week, we would have an, a conversation group in town at a local Irish pub for, for upperclassmen, again, mixed context, Christians and non-Christians. And I would come with a topic of conversation. And we would just hang out and discuss topics. They were biblical topics. Most people didn't know that going in. And so one of the questions I asked was, how do you assess what is most important to you? And I would ask the group, hey, so what would you say is most important to you? And oftentimes, um, students would say something like, oh, you know, my family, or, or God, or the church. And I thought, yeah, that's great. You know, you've probably been well-trained. You know that's the right answer. And I realized asking someone what is most important to you is actually a really unhelpful way to get a good answer. And I realized, you know what is a better way of figuring out what is most important to a person? To ask them to consider the weight, the loss that would be incurred by not having that thing in their life. Okay? Uh, what would be your response if you didn't have X, Y, or Z? Would you be bummed out? Would you be disappointed? Or would you be absolutely devastated. And I realized to find out what is really important to someone isn't just to ask what they know they're supposed to value, but to consider the weight of loss if they didn't have that thing. And so I created this tool for our students to go through in these conversations groups. And it was around March at the time, and um, it was during the NCAA basketball tournament, March Madness, where so many people would fill out these brackets, right? Uh, 64 teams would be in this tournament, and they were supposed to guess, right, which teams would win individual games, and then they would write down, and you would play against friends, you would, um, you would compete, and you wanted to get the most answers right. You wanted to be able to pick the most right answers as to who was going to win the games in this tournament. And I thought, hmm, I'm going to key in on this. I'm going to create my own bracket, okay? So I created 16 topics that I thought were the things that students might put their most hope or their most value in. And I would ask them to go through these 16 topics and say, what would be worse, if this was true in your life or if this was true in your life? And they would have to pick for them what would be the worst thing. 
And so I would pair them up, and it might be like, hey, what would be worse, to be friendless or to be penniless? To have no friends or no money, what would be worse? And they would have to move to the next thing, say, oh, I think this would be worse. What about, what, what if you didn't have legs? What would be worse, not having legs or not having an education? What about this? What about not having a voice that's ever heard or not being married? Which one would be worse for you? And they would go through, and we would talk about them as they went. And I did this with a number of different groups, both Christian and non-Christian. And every time we went through this, the final two were the same. They were always this. Would you rather be hopeless or would you rather be dead? And over and over again, Christians and non-Christians alike, they would affirm, I would much rather be dead than to have to live in this world with no sense of hope, with no sense of that there's something coming, there's something that I can look forward to, even if it was just a, a weekend with friends. I couldn't do that. I'd rather be dead. And so the reality for us, the inescapable reality, regardless of where you are when you walked in these doors, whether you would say that you're a Christian, whether you came with a friend and you're checking this whole thing out, the inescapable reality is that we all put our hope in something. It's not a question of do I or don't I, but it's a question of what. And so the question for you is, what do we put our hope in? You know, I think when we hear the word hope, for most of us, we tend to have a favorable disposition to the word, right? Uh, here's the reality. Hope is a totally neutral term, right? Hope is a neutral term. So if, um, if your financial plan for the future is to win the lottery, and you're hoping on winning the lottery as a means for securing uh, some sort of financial security, I would say hope isn't good. That's foolish, Hope is bad. If you're a UC Davis student and you're coming up to finals in the middle of June and you're hoping for snow because you're not quite prepared and you need some extra time to study, that hope is not good. Roly, our beloved worship leader, is a 49ers fan. <laughs> Misplaced hope. Hope is not a neutral term. We realize that hope is only defined by its object. Hope is defined by its object. Hope is defined by that thing that we are entrusting ourselves to, that thing that we are putting our confidence in, that thing that we are looking to for our good. And so this morning, our text, we're looking in Philippians 3, we're looking at the life of Paul, and he in Philippians is writing to a church that he visited in his second missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts chapter 16. And we know that when he was visiting this church, this church in Philippi, he was there with his buddy Silas. And we know that while he was there, Paul and Silas were beaten with rods, and they were thrown into a prison and closely guarded. Through various circumstances, he got out, and now, later in life, he is writing back to this church which he helped plant, which he helped initiate, which he has a very fond affection for. Let me read Philippians 3, 1 to 16. 
Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith." that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Friends, we're going to go through that passage, uh, making some observations along the way. It's a wonderful passage. We'll unpack it a little bit more. I just want to focus on those first three verses, though. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. If you were to read the four chapters of Philippians, you're going to find a common theme throughout the text. Paul is telling them, rejoice. Last week, Jeremy gave us this sermon from Psalm 1611 about joy, and I loved it. I loved it. It was such a good sermon. He talked about how joy is something that we don't have to wait till we die to receive, to experience fully. It is something that we can have now. It is spirit-produced, and it, is, uh, it defies our circumstances. Okay? And this is the joy that Paul is saying, Philippians, church, rejoice. It is no problem for me to say this to you. And then in verses 2 and 3, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Two weeks ago, Jake shared on freedom from Galatians 5 in which he talked about because of Jesus we are free. And he addressed the fact that even in Galatia, early on in the church, there were people who were coming in and saying, hey, it's not just about having faith in Jesus. These Jewish Christians were saying you have to do other parts of this Hebrew law in order to really be a Christian. Specifically, you needed to be circumcised. And it seems like even in verses 2 and 3, this sort of thinking has crept further west over into Philippi. And Paul is addressing that in Philippians 2 and 3. Now we're looking at three groups today. Again, I'm going to just give you all up front. A people without hope a people with a false hope, and we've already been here, but a people with the only true hope. 
let's look at a people without hope. Remember, Paul uh, is writing to the Philippian church. This is a Gentile church. These are people who were primarily non-Jews in Philippi. And you might be looking at the screen and saying, hey, Tom, I thought we're talking about Philippians. Why does it say Ephesians? Guys, I just enjoyed the Ephesians series so much. We're going to dip back really quick. And uh, we're going to read something Paul writes to the Ephesians to kind of help us proceed forward. My buddy James, uh, good friend James, uh, co-worker with the Navigators, he preached from Ephesians 2 months ago, and he shared this text, verses 1 through 3. Paul is speaking to these Gentiles, and he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. He's saying, Gentiles, before Christ, this was your reality. Here are the things you applied your heart to. Here are the things that you engaged in. This was where the natural trajectory of your heart apart from Christ led you. And he follows up in verse 12. He says this, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And here in Ephesians 2.12, Paul lays out in two ways the deplorable state of the Gentiles, the hopeless state of the Gentiles prior to Jesus. He says, first, you were separate from Christ. You didn't have Jesus, okay? Right after that, he gives you the second reason why Gentiles, which, by the way, us primarily, we are a Gentile church. Here is the second way in which we had no hope. He says we were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. We weren't Jews. We weren't the chosen people. We weren't the people who God had revealed himself to as his chosen vessel through whom the Messiah would come. And the verdict Paul gives us at the very end of Ephesians 2.12 is this, having no hope and without God in the world. This is who we were. We had no hope. We had no hope. Now, a people with a false hope, okay? And this is where Paul addresses that second category. Finding your identity as a Jew and being part of the commonwealth of Israel, being the inheritors of these promises. This is what Paul says. Now we're back to Philippians 3. He has just said at the end of verse 3, talked about putting confidence in the flesh, starting Philippians 3, verse 4. He says this, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless." Paul says, hey, as Christians, we don't put our confidence in the flesh anymore. But he goes further and say, but if anyone were 
to put their confidence in the flesh. If anyone were to put their confidence in what they can do, in their own moral obedience, in their own ability to obey God, Paul says, if there's anyone who can do it, I can do it the best. And he lays out these reasons as to why, as one of the students I disciple would say, why Paul is the Jewist of them all. He does. He, he, he lays out these very Jewish things, almost as a list of accolades as to why he is the Jewest of them all, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. He talks about how he is the Hebrew of Hebrews. In regards to following the law, he identifies himself as a Pharisee. He aligns himself with a sect of Jews who were wholeheartedly devoted to trying on their own strength to carry out every small little tenet of the law. As for zeal, he says, I was so zealous I persecuted the Christian church. Paul could say, look at all these things I could hope in. Look at this identity I had for myself. Look at all these great things that I could do. If anyone thinks they can do it better than me, they're wrong. If anyone has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Paul finds his hope, previously found his hope in all these things. He could boast in all these things. All these things that he could do. All these things which he could look to for meaning in his life. And I read Paul and I think, yeah, I, I do that too. You know, centuries ago, people would look at Christian belief and they would dismiss it as superstition, as myths, as fables. And the prevailing notion among those outside the church was that once we know more, once we learn more, we, the Christians can't rely on these myths to make sense of the world because we'll have clean-cut, clear explanations and there will be, um, there will be no mystery there will be no mystery about death. The Christians won't be able to rely on this resurrection narrative because we'll be able to explain everything once we're more technologically advanced, once we're smarter. And so there was a sense that once we know more, religion will be obsolete. And as we moved, we moved into the 18th century, we had this thing called the Enlightenment. A period of a little over a century in which these advances in science, in, in, in mathematics, in physics, in so many areas brought waves and waves of discovery. And the idea was at the end of this Enlightenment period, there would be no more room for religion. There would be no more room because we wouldn't have any of these deep questions left. We would be able to, be able to objectively and empirically explain why the world works. There wouldn't be mystery. There wouldn't be um, a sense of the unknown. Christians couldn't cling to these texts anymore because we will have proven them obsolete. And the way that we interact with the world today, we can't go anywhere without feeling and experiencing the effects of the Enlightenment. And yet I'm up here and I'm still scratching my head and for all the progress that we were promised... For all the advances, I look at myself and I look at my friends, I look at the students on campus, and I think we still have all the same questions. You know, we got these cool devices now. 
But where are our answers? Where's the progress? I look at the world that we live in, and we are the most addicted, the most incarcerated, the most medicated, the most narcissistic, the most relationally disconnected generation the world's ever seen. And I'm thinking, hey, for all the great things we have, for all the answers we're supposedly supposed to get, as I talk to people on campus, I think we're asking these questions more than ever. Where's our hope? Where's our meaning? We didn't get answers, we just got more questions. We're still looking for meaning. We're still inevitably looking for something to put our hope in. And we can look around, and in our hearts, we can find ready-made things that will occupy that space. Maybe it's a spouse. Again, maybe it's a financial plan. Maybe you can find your value, your meaning, your ultimate hope in the fact that you serve in the church. Maybe it's in your moral discipline. Maybe it's in your job. Maybe it's in your grades. We can look to everything to validate us. We can look to all these things we've given ourselves to to give us life, to ultimately say, if I have this, then life will be okay. I can do it on my own. You can't. You can't do it on your own. If you're looking to yourself to be the thing that saves you, you will end up heartbroken. There's a great, a great picture of this. It's in the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. In this book, we read about a young man named Eustace Scrub. What a name. Eustace Scrub. And he's traveling on the Dawn Treader with some of the children in the book. And on their second island they come to, uh, they come to this island, and, and Eustace is kind of a selfish kid, kind of a chore to be around. And he's on this island, and Eustace, being selfish, uh, desiring power, he comes upon this treasure in a cave, and he realizes it's a dragon's treasure. And his eyes are big, and he thinks, wow, look what I found. And as he's reveling in the fact that he has found this dragon's treasure in this cave, he falls asleep. And as we read in the text, it says, as he's dreaming his dragonish thoughts, something happens to Eustace. He wakes up and something's changed. He himself has become the embodiment of what he most desired. He himself has become a dragon. And at first he thinks, this is great. This is wonderful. I have power now. I will demand respect. I have all the things I've wanted. I'm rich. But that excitement, that joy about his newfound physical state quickly dissipates as he realizes, ah, that bracelet I was wearing on my arm, that really hurts now. I can't get it off. It's digging into my dragon skin. My friends are talking about leaving on the Dawn Treader. I can't go with them. And the joy that he once experienced as finally getting the things he longed for the most dissipates. And we pick it up in the story. It says this. He is now walking with the lion, Aslan, who, if you've read the book, you know is, is the figure of Christ in these books. And Eustace is pretty desperate. 
He says, So at last we came to the top of a mountain I'd never seen before. And on the top of this mountain there was a garden, trees and fruit and everything. In the middle of it there was a well. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. I was going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one. And I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and tore again. And this underskin peeled off beautifully. And out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and off a third skin, just like the others, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. Check this out. The first tear that he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peeled off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only those times hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, my skin, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. He caught hold of me. I didn't care for that much, for I was tender underneath now that I had no skin. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. Eustace thought, I can do this on my own. I can take care of myself. I can put my hope in my own effort to make myself right again. And after all the effort, all the tearing, all the clawing, he looked at himself over and over and thought, it's no good. I needed someone to do it for me. And as he describes, it felt like the claws went straight into his heart to make him right. Paul's realization in his life was that he could not focus on his own efforts. 
He could not focus on the fact that he was simply the Hebrew of Hebrews. He could not focus on the fact that he was circumcised on the eighth day or that he was zealous for the, persecuting the church or that he identified as a Pharisee. And he says this, starting in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. If you have your message notes, this is where we're shifting into a people with the only true hope. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All those things I've listed, all those things that I could do, all those things that I found my value and my identity and put my hope in, he starts out in verse 7 with this coordinating conjunction, but. This is one of the biggest buts in the Bible. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've just listed, I now count as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He says, those things I put my value in, they're nothing. I count them but rubbish. And this is a case where our English translators don't do us much help. This word that's been translated from the Greek into our English rubbish shows up once in the entire New Testament. And I imagine our translators were blushing as they read it. Paul is intentionally being kind of vulgar. He's raising eyebrows. The word, its most common usage, its most common translation is human excrement, dung, poop. I didn't think I'd ever say that in church. Okay, poop. He says those things were to be dismissed outright of having no value compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and not finding my identity through obedience to a law, but in knowing him. Remember, if there is one thing you leave today when you're telling your friends or you're reminding yourself later what church was about, it is that Jesus is our only true hope. A Christian's hope is not in an idea or a doctrine. It is in a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And as it says in the scriptures, Acts 4.12, that there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It is this Jesus who was sent on our behalf because God saw that in our sin there was nothing that we could do on our own to endear ourselves to him, to bridge this cosmic gap that we had created by us pursuing things less than God, 
Despite our best efforts, there was nothing we could do to have restored fellowship with God. And in his infinite mercy and love for us, God sent his son Jesus to come be born for us, to live and teach for us, to die for us, and ultimately to be raised again for us. And through faith in him and what he has done, his perfect work on the cross, his perfect work in raising from the dead, there's an invitation that we can become children of God through faith in Christ. And that is the gospel. That is where our hope lies. Not in the academic pursuit of this idea, but in the person through whom all of this was accomplished. And you might be sitting here and thinking, yeah, amen, yes, I understand all this. I've heard this in Sunday school. I've heard it all my whole life. But I, I just, I don't always believe it. And maybe we feel like, like the man in Mark 9, 24 who says, Jesus, I, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And that is absolutely okay. And if that's you, Christian, let me gently remind you that you are not saved by the strength of your faith. You are saved by the object of your faith. Jesus Christ. You read about these people in the scriptures who over and over seem to screw things up, seem to mess things up. And you think, how could God be for them? You read the, uh, Hebrews 11, this hall of faith in which there's these, all these characters who you actually go back and read about in the Old Testament and you think, really? They're, they're in Hebrews 11, huh? The hall of faith. And yet the author of Hebrews gives us the final word about these imperfect believers, these imperfect lovers. And it says that they were approved for their faith. Hebrews eleven thirty nine. 39. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. Let us therefore, excuse me, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God understands our weakness. He understands our frailty. He understands our propensity to want to look to things that we can control for our hope. Jesus can identify with every one of our weaknesses. He became one of us. And because of him, we have access, confident access to God. And one of our, one of our, um, our, our, our purposes in this sermon series is that we can develop a rhythm of drawing near to God. And we need to understand that this is only possible because of the confident access we have in Jesus. Final point here, the posture of a hopeful person. If we understand that Jesus has done this for us, if we understand that Jesus is our only true hope, if he is our only option for being reconciled to God, if he is the only one that can bear the weight of these cosmically huge expectations for meaning, for life, for a sense of fulfillment, for our own identity, what is the posture we're supposed to have as Christians when we leave today? 
Philippians 3, 12 to 16. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also, also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as, a, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. I think we can read this and think, of course Paul would say this. Of course Paul can press on because, hey, it's Paul after all. The reality is, yes, Paul is writing to a church in which he was imprisoned, where he was beaten with rods. What I didn't say is that Paul is also writing this from a prison. And it is in this state that he has said, rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and press on. There is something greater. There is something better. He has said, there's nothing that compares with knowing Jesus. Because of that, we can have hope. We can press on. And he says, I have not already attained it. What he's not saying is, I'm not already a Christian. He has been justified, but as Paul writes in so many of his books, what he is saying is that the fulfillment, the final culmination of what that's going to be when he's with Jesus face to face is not yet his. And he says, press on. For you today, you might need to hear this. I don't know where you're at. I don't know how this idea of Mother's Day strikes you. Maybe you've just had a really crappy week. Maybe you feel alienated from your friends. Maybe you feel alienated from God. We all have concerns. We all have worries. We all have doubts. We're all counting on things to pan out. Paul says, press on. This life is not easy. I'm starting to realize that. This is not easy. Paul understood that maybe better than anyone. And Paul was still a guy that could say rejoice. Press on. If our confidence is in Jesus, it's well placed. Here's a great quote. This isn't scripture, but I, I like it for a couple reasons. Dostoevsky writes, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, and that it will make it not only possible for, to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. And I like this because, one, it doesn't glamorize suffering, as maybe we're prone to do. It also doesn't minimize it. Dostoevsky, he, he, he acknowledges it, and then he gives us a perspective. Life isn't easy. And I'll close with this verse, Hebrews 6, 19. This hope we have, this hope in Jesus Christ, 
we have as an anchor of the soul a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. Jesus is our anchor. And if Jesus is the anchor, he's below the surface holding everything together. The implication being, I think the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate, we're the ship. And the sea can still be stormy when you're anchored. What we're experiencing on the surface can really suck. It can be hard. It can be tumultuous. We can have questions. But the author of Hebrews wants us to see Jesus as our anchor. This hope we have in him is an anchor for our soul. And because of what he has done, entering the veil, being the perfect sacrifice for us, he has made it possible for us to carry on, to press on. The worship team is going to come up here. You guys, as Christians, we should live as the most hopeful people in the world. As Jeremy said, our joy defies circumstance. Our joy defies all the things around us that feel like everything's coming off the hinges and the world's coming apart. I'm going to pray. Let us not give up hope. Jesus, thanks for today. Thanks that in you, Lord, we, we, we have our one true hope. Our confidence in you, Lord. Our acceptance by you is not measured by the strength of your faith, our faith. It's measured by what you have done for us. So Lord, as we worship, I pray that we worship with hearts that are inclined to you, that you would give us the freedom and the humility to open up our hands to you, to let go of those things we've been holding on to for life, for validation, for security. Even as we sing, even as we worship, Lord, help us to see you more clearly. Amen.